you turn with me uh, in your Bibles to the book of Job, uh, jump forward a few chapters from uh, where we stopped previously, and I want to take up the take up the book at chapter twenty-eight. Hear the word of the Lord. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the furthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it, the lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is found. It is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living, and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say we have heard a rumour of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth, and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out, and he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Praise God for his holy word. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Oh Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, as we come to address your word this evening, we would ask, O Lord, that you would speak to us as we reflect and meditate upon these words written so many centuries ago. We pray, O Lord, that the wisdom they contain or the wisdom that they point to might might become alive to us, that your Holy Spirit might might, uh, remove the scales from our eyes, and that we might behold in the teaching of your word the glories and the beauty of yourself as expressed in and through the flesh of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The chapter I've just read is actually, it might be my favourite chapter in the whole of the Bible. Uh, I had it read at my ordination many years ago. Uh, I had it read when I was installed as pastor in a church in Philadelphia. Uh, I had it read uh, when I was installed by the presbytery here as teacher at Grove City College. It's uh, a a chapter that has accompanied me throughout the years. I actually have a 
a page from a Geneva Bible uh, framed and hanging up on my wall at home uh, with this chapter on it. Somebody wrote to me a few years ago and said they wanted to give me a page of a Geneva Bible. Was there a chapter I would like? I didn't ask too deeply about what he was doing with the Bible, but I said Job 28 straight away, and he sent it to me in the mail. It's an important chapter to me, I think, because it addresses surely one of the most important, if not the most important question that human beings have to face, and that is, what is wisdom? The search for wisdom is a hardy perennial of life. I spend a significant amount of my time at Grove City College teaching the Capstone Humanities course. Jeff had the misfortune of going through it with me a few years ago. And one could summarize that course perhaps in a couple of sentences, saying that it's essentially looking at how modern men and women have searched for wisdom, having abandoned the idea that God is the source of wisdom. And we look really at the futility and the nihilism that that leads to. Every generation, every generation seeks wisdom. And if you were to look at any given period in history and go to what that generation or that period considered to be wisdom, it would take you to the very heart of the age or the culture that you were looking at. The chapter we're looking at here, of course, comes in the middle of Job's final defense speech. Job has had enough of his first three comforters and he launches into a significant defense of himself, which will last for several chapters. And this chapter, chapter 28, occurs right in the middle of his final defense speech. The dialogue, as I say, with his three friends is over. It's become increasingly tense and bad-tempered. Two other figures have yet to speak. Elihu, the young man whose presence is as yet unknown to the reader at this point, when you're first reading through the book of Job. Elihu has yet to launch his speeches at the close of Job's defense. And then, of course, God himself has yet to speak from the whirlwind. Commentators debate the meaning of the book of Job, of course, and they debate the critical turning point in the book of Job. I think it is Job 28. I think Job 28 gives us, gives us a clue as to what is going on in the book of Job as a whole. One of the questions commentators actually ask about this chapter is, is it part of Job's speech or is it a sort of piece of commentary inserted in the middle of Job's speech to help orient the reader to what's going on. The reason for uh, arguing that it's not part of Job's speech is that it seems out of sync with the rest of Job's final defense speech, which uh, witnesses to his increasing pain and anguish. Suddenly we have what is in many ways a rather calm and dispassionate assessment of the nature of wisdom in the midst of Job's raw cry of pain. Others have argued that, well, if you've ever encountered or been uh, somebody yourself who's suffered, you'll know that you have ups and downs. People are suffering have ups and downs. They have periods of what we might describe as calm lucidity. 
and periods when their distress overwhelms them. I think there is very little at stake in that discussion. Is it a piece of commentary or is it Job himself speaking? The ESV uh, locates it as a speech of Job. I don't think there's much at stake. It's not who's speaking here that's important. It's what's being said. And I think what's being said is this. First of all, we have what one might describe as a hymn to man's technical brilliance. The book of Job extols the greatness of human beings. Then the writer asks where wisdom is to be found. And finally, in the moving last section, we find out where wisdom is to be found. So, let's look at the uh, three basic sections then. First, a hymn to man's technical brilliance. The example that uh, Job chooses here is that of mining. When you think of, uh, of mining, it's, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon, of course. Western Pennsylvania, marked by mining. It involves high physical risk. It involves individuals engaging in conscious risk, putting their lives on the line, whether it's open-cast mining or whether it's boring into the belly of the earth. It involves, we might say, voluntary physical risk. Remember, one of the most moving essays I ever read as a child uh, for school was an essay, uh, Down the Mine, by George Orwell where he describes uh, spending a day with miners in the north of England and going down into the pit, uh, and with Orwell's usual literary brilliance, summoning up the terror involved in being so far underground in the dark. It involves high physical, voluntary risk. It involves huge effort. It's not something that's easy. Miners are tough individuals physically and mentally very strong. It's technological. It's technological. It's, it's not something that is easy to do. Rabbits burrow holes. At least, you know, if lawns are anything to go by, you'll find rabbit holes. But they don't mine. They don't engage in the technological work of making a mine shaft, the engineering that goes into a mine, the sheer scale of a mine shaft is remarkable. And it creates, of course, wealth and beauty. Job here is not thinking so much of coal mining, which is perhaps the mining with which most of us are familiar. He's thinking here of gold and gems. Mining, if you like, forces the earth to give up its riches and then opens up the possibility of man's creation of beauty and value out of these raw materials. And we might say, underlying it all, where where mining is perhaps a good example of more general human activity then is this. Mining involves a certain mastery over creation. Human beings made in the image of God have a certain mastery over creation. Remember Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Adam and Eve are placed in the garden. They're placed in the garden as the sort of vice-regents, the ambassadors, the representatives of God. 
And they're not purely impotent in that role. They're to use their freedom to do things. They're to use their freedom to subdue the earth, to go forth, to multiply. They have a powerful, creative role. Mining is creative, and it lays the foundation for further creativity. My wife has an engagement We are married, by the way, but she is wearing her engagement ring. Her engagement thing is a thing of beauty. And the diamond and the gold involved were mined by somebody. And then somebody else, some other human, used that raw material to create something of beauty. What emerges from this description of mining is this idea that man stands as one who, in a sense, masters creation. That's emphasized. That's really the first eight verses. We, we get this, though, further emphasized in verses 9 to 11, when we hear about man overturning and quarrying rocks. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. Man is able to dam up streams. Man is able to manipulate, reshape, and remake creation in accordance with his plans. And think about that. Beavers dam up streams. Beavers dam up streams because that's what they're programmed to do. To be a beaver is to be one who dams up a stream. Man chooses which streams to dam up, where to dam them up, and whether he dams them up at all. Man is a free and intentional being in a way that a beaver is not. Man is able to intentionally manipulate, reshape, and remake creation in accordance with his plans. We might say, and I say this uh, uh, with all reverence, because man is made in the image of God. Man has God-like qualities and abilities. He's made in the image of God. And what is the thing, one of the things that most marks God off is he's creative, as are men and women. If we were writing this today, if the book of Job was taking place today in 21st century America, we might, uh, in Job 28, add science, surgery, technology to the list of technological accomplishments being spoken of here. Job would have had no inkling of what was coming, but we could add those because they represent the same kind of thing. Man is technological, man is creative, Man is set apart from creation or the rest of the creatures on that front. And there are some great examples here. Uh, The falcon and the lion. One of the things I always wanted to do as a kid, but unfortunately you have to be pretty wealthy to do it. Uh, I did get the chance some years ago and I was preaching in an Arab country to, to hold one of these, but I've always been fascinated by falconry. As a kid, watched the movie Cares, and the idea of training a falcon was romantic. Falcons are most beautiful creatures. The birds of prey in western Pennsylvania that you see are amazing. They fly so high, they strike with such incredible accuracy. They seem to see all things. They can be way up there and see the vole or the mouse in the field and swoop down and strike in an instance. I don't know if you've ever looked on the internet and seen a picture of the man who, the falcon, is skydiving with his falcon. And there he is in free fall, and his falcon is right by him, shooting down at the same speed. Quite amazing. Falcons are amazing creatures. Lions are magnificent. They're not called the king of the jungle for no reason. They're magnificent creatures. 
They're the top of the food chain. We have a fox who trots through our garden every now and then. I always think, foxes like lions around here. The fox knows he's at the top of the food chain. He can strut through our garden any time he likes. He knows the house is owned by an unarmed British guy. So he doesn't have to worry about anything. He's top dog in our neighborhood. The lion is right at the top. He's magnificent. He's powerful. He's cat royalty, no less. And yet, as the book of Job says here, as great as the falcon and the lion are, they're oblivious to the brilliance of men and women. They don't even have the categories to understand what men and women are capable of. We know from the Bible's teaching that human beings are marked by incredible creativity. Genesis 4, verse 22, we hear of Tubal Cain, the first man who makes instruments of bronze and iron. We hear of music fairly shortly thereafter. Human beings, the only creatures on the surface of the globe with the brain physiology both to produce and hear music. Bezalel and Aholiab in Ezekiel 31. They're given skills by God in order to be able to make the beautiful things that are necessary for worship in the Old Testament as God has specified. As God is creative, so is man. Made in his image, creative too. We're creative beyond the utilitarian. We make things of beauty to enjoy them as things of beauty. Animals make things, but they don't appreciate beauty. No animal paints a painting or hangs a painting in his house in order to look on it as something of beauty. No animal has an art gallery other than man. We make things, if you like, that we don't need in order to survive because we are creative. And there is an overflowing of creativity from us. Human beings, we freely choose to make things. We freely choose to design them. We can make things with a sense of beauty or a sense of the tragic. We make things to enrich our lives. Not simply to utilize things. We make things that will enrich our lives. So see, music. There's always music playing in our house. It's wonderful to live in an era, isn't it, where music, you can listen to at any time. My wife and I, uh, today, we were listening to Handel's, uh, this morning, Handel's uh, Chandos, uh, what they're called. But his setting of the Psalms to music, it was sort of eclipsed by the Messiah. Uh, But it's Chandos anthems, his setting of the Psalms to music. It's very beautiful. No animal does that. I can sit outside in the summer and listen to beautiful bird song, but it's not the same as listening to a Bach or a Handel or a Mozart or a Brahms. We can look on art, painting and sculpture. We can read great literature. Uh, We can read great poems. We can watch great plays. We play sport. We are creative. In all this, yes, we are fallen. But one of the amazing things is that our fallenness, our human rebellion against God, has not destroyed our creativity, or our ability to produce works of technical brilliance and even beauty. 
And yet, and yet, Job 28 presses the question. At the end of this great hymn to the magnificence of human beings, so that as the human beings so far above, if you like, the hawk and the lion, the writer presses the question, verse 12, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Yes, human beings are magnificent. We are creative. We appreciate beauty. We are distinct from all the creatures on the face of the globe. But is that wisdom? Is that wisdom? And then the writer goes on to offer a series of, well, no, he isn't offering them as answers, but to point out that wisdom is not to be equated with the things of this material world. Verse 13, Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. Man can be technically brilliant. He can appreciate beauty. He can compose great symphonies. He can produce wonderful artwork. He can play great sport. He can bend nature to his will. And yet that is not wisdom, the writer is saying here. Even death, he goes on to say in verse 22, Even death, the most powerful force in nature, is shown by the poet here as having no real clue about wisdom. And that's a powerful warning. It's a powerful warning to us that one tragedy, perhaps the greatest tragedy of the modern world, is this. We seek to find the meaning of life within the material bounds of the world itself. And yet it cannot be found there. Just read a fascinating book that ultimately comes to the wrong answer, but the book's argument is fascinating. Uh, uh, It's a book by uh, the philosopher Elizabeth Lash Quinn, where she says that the tragedy of modern life is if you pursue happiness, you will never find it. She was saying we need something transcendent to worship in order to find happiness here on earth. Fascinating argument. It's kind of there in Job 28. If you look for wisdom within the bounds of the material world, the writer is saying, you will not find it, even amidst all of this technical brilliance. Wisdom is not of this world. It is therefore not something that can be bought. The writer says here, man does not know the value of it. It cannot be bought for a price. It is not susceptible to material value. Verses 7 and 21 are interesting. Uh, The language of sight is used there. Wisdom cannot be seen by any living creature. Notice in verse 7, that path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The writer there is talking about mines, of course, deep in the earth. And he's taking even the falcon with his razor-sharp eye who can pick out a mouse from 500 feet in the air, on the ground. The falcon can't see man's brilliance. He can't see what man is doing below the surface of the earth. And as far high as man is, we might say, above the falcon, so high is God above man. Verse 27. He saw it and declared it. Who? Who? 
God. Human beings cannot see wisdom either. As far above, sorry, it's verse 21, not 26. It is hidden, sorry, from the eyes of all living, concealed from the birds of the air. What the writer's saying there is, birds of prey cannot see the genius of man. Man cannot see the wisdom of God. Maybe sort of saying, the gap between us and other creatures, as great as it is, is small compared to the gap between all creatures and God himself. It's reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 1.25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul there, playing on these kind of things, even the foolishness of God is wiser than our highest wisdom. In other words, wisdom is not something that is ultimately technical in nature. Wisdom in the book of Job, wisdom in the Bible, is not something we can do of our own strength. Wisdom is something more profound than that. And that, of course, is one of the problems of the modern age, that we try to reduce all problems to the technical. Whatever problem we face, we think if we just increase our technological effort to solve it, the problem will ultimately be solved. And I suspect it's, it's sort of why we tend to panic rather excessively when we come up against a problem that isn't immediately technically solvable. Think about the COVID pandemic. Uh, faced with a problem that we didn't have an immediate technological solution to, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to do other than press harder and harder on the technical side of things. No, wisdom, as Job 28 is going to declare, is not a technical ability. It's not something we learn by following other human beings. It's not some technological skill we develop. It is a moral quality involving the whole person. God sees it, verse 24, verse 27. It is the fear of the Lord. It is the understanding of who God is and an appropriate reaction to that understanding. It's knowing God. Wisdom is not being spiritual. It's amazing how so many people, uh, were, particularly Hollywood stars, when they're interviewed on TV, they're asked, you know, are you religious? Do you believe in God? They say, no, but I am a spiritual person. As if I don't want to say that I just believe that matter is all there is. I want to come across as somehow profound. I'm a spiritual person. That's not what wisdom is in Job 28. Wisdom here derives from knowing God. It involves specific knowledge of God based upon how he has revealed himself to be. Wisdom is not a quest. We live in an era where searching is always seen to indicate depth and spirituality. That's not what's being described here. Wisdom is not a quest. Wisdom is fear of the Lord. Wisdom, we might say, is arresting in and responding to the truth of God. And that knowledge itself cannot be reduced to a set of technical facts or truths. It's more it's intangible or intuitive than that. I was very influenced as a, a young Christian reading, uh, like so many 
people of my generation, I guess. J.I. Packer's wonderful book, Knowing God, where he begins by making a distinction between knowing about God and knowing God. You know, I can know heaps of stuff about a subject. Uh, I can know heaps of stuff about another human being. But knowing a human being as a friend, being in a relationship with them, loving them, that's different to just knowing stuff about them. I know a lot of things about Donald Trump, a lot of things about President Biden. We can know a lot of things about people we've never met. But to truly know somebody is to have some kind of relationship with them that cannot be reduced to a set of facts. And when it comes to God, knowing God involves what? Well, it involves an acknowledgement that God is the sovereign creator and that all else is but a grasping of the wind or a futile assertion of human power in the face of obvious weakness. It's being in awe of God. Such knowledge is not abstract. It is existential in the deepest sense of the word. Anybody can read Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology and know heaps of stuff about the attributes of God. But that's not knowing God. That's not acquiring wisdom. That's merely acquiring knowledge. It's turning from evil. That's what we're told in verse 20. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. We tend to think that understanding is the technical grasping of a subject. I was useless at mathematics. I never understood it. There was no technical grasp in my mind of what was going on there. But that's not what understanding is here. Understanding is turning from evil. Understanding is a moral quality, not a technical ability. Wisdom, understanding, these are intuitive. Rooted in theological convictions about truths concerning God. The New Testament, of course, closely identifies this with Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians 1 is an amazing chapter, isn't it? What uh, Paul is saying, he's saying a lot of things there. One of the things he's saying is, if you try to grasp the significance of Christ, simply using, we might say, technical knowledge, you will come up with the wrong answer. If you're a Jew, you will come up with the idea that this man is moral offense. If you're a Greek, you'll come up with the idea that he's ridiculous. If you truly know God, you will understand that this man is the power of God, the salvation, the wisdom of God manifest in the flesh. Wisdom is an acknowledgement that God is who he has revealed himself to be in Christ and that we are therefore what God has shown us to be. Rebels dependent upon him, even at denial of that dependency, and urgently needing to turn to Christ in reverence and awe. And that brings me back to Job. Let's think about this just for a second. What is happening to Job in this book? When we read the book of Job, I think we, we empathize with him or sympathize with him in his struggles. And we're looking at the details of the arguments how wrestling, he and his friends are wrestling with the problem of suffering, the problem of evil. But something else is happening as well. Job is growing in his fear of the Lord. It's a painful experience. What Job is learning, 
we might say, in practice, is probably what he always knew in theory. But now he's learning it in a deep, personal and experienced way. He's learning that life is fragile, that life is a gift, that circumstances where human beings feel and are hopeless and helpless leave us asking about the deepest questions of life. That's why I, if I was to have to come down one way or the other, it's why I tilt towards perhaps seeing this chapter as a little bit of commentary on what's going on. It seems to me that what we're being told here is, look at what's happening to Job relative to the fear of the Lord. Look at what is happening to Job relative to that deep question about what is human wisdom. And that brings me then to the application. You might say, well, this is all great. Human beings are creative, and yet creativity is not wisdom. How does that apply to us today? Well, I think it applies in this way. Church. What is church? Church is more than just a place to transmit information. If you want to know what the Bible says, you can sit at home and read a book on the Bible. Uh, I'm guessing that if your pastor is anything like me, quite a lot of what he probably says in the pulpit he got from other people. You could just read those other people. You could just read those other people. And that would be okay if church was merely a place to come to have information transmitted. But it isn't, is it? Church is a place, I think, where we come to learn the fear of the Lord. How do we do that? We sing God's praises. Think about the role of music and poetry throughout human history, just in the, in the secular realm. We know that poetry and music touch human beings at a very deep level. No falcon composes a poem, yet every human society everywhere throughout history has had its poetry and its music because they speak to us as whole people, made in God's image at a very deep level. We sing God's praises. And in singing God's praises, we are transformed. We learn something of the fear of the Lord. We learn something of wisdom. We call out to God in prayer. What do we do when we pray? We contemplate his glory. We confess our sins. We make our requests. What do we do? Well, in doing so, not only do we do those things, but we also act upon and deepen our sense of corporate and individual dependence upon God. We become more wise. We gain in our understanding. We participate in the sacraments. The pastor announced that next Sunday in the morning will be the Lord's Supper. The sacraments are what? They're actions which affect us bodily, corporately, individually. Always saying in class, Jeff can confirm this. There's a reason why people on their first dates often go out for a meal. Food is important. Sitting at a table and enjoying a nice meal with somebody is more than just taking in calories. You can do that on a drive through at McDonald's. Yeah, if you ask somebody out on a date, the first date's going to be a drive through at McDonald's, you do not deserve to go on a date with that person. You want to take them to a nice restaurant. Why? Because taking food together deepens and shapes relationships. In a way we can't articulate, but in some ways... That's part of the beauty and the mystery of human relationships, isn't it? 
we take the sacrament together, we engage in a corporate ritual. Gives us Christ, binds us together as we share in that meal with a shared identity as Christ's people. And we hear the word proclaimed, but it is not just a lecture. It is God speaking to his people as, well, as putting, borrowing those words uh, from uh, the books of Moses, as a man speaks to his friends. It's not information as God addressing us, speaking to us. Where is wisdom to be found then? Well, the tried answer is in Christ. It's tried doesn't mean it isn't true. It is very true. Where is Christ to be found? I would say overwhelmingly in the corporate actions of his church, preparing us both to live for him and to die in him. Praise God for his holy word. Let us pray. O Lord God, we do praise you, for you are a great and a sovereign God, and as high above the creatures as we are, so far higher are you above us. And yet made in your image, and redeemed by the blood of your Son, we live in relationship with you. We pray, O Lord, this evening, that you would make us wise, and that you would give us understanding, that we might fear you with a holy fear, and we might turn from evil and pursue righteousness. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close our worship this evening by by singing hymn number...